Working here is like being a member of a big dysfunctional family. My name is Andrea and this is Adult Child. Welcome back to Adult Child, where we take a deep dive into the impact of growing up in a dysfunctional family. Hello, my shit shows, or rather, ahoy, yo ho ho, yo ho ho, my shit shows. How are we doing? Oh, that's great. I'm glad to hear that. Uh, maybe we should do a live show sometime. Should we do a live show? I'm only doing a live show if. You promise that you'll come (laughs) and you promise that you'll heckle me and you promise that you will throw tomatoes at me. Okay. Those seriously, those, those are the ground rules. Uh, welcome new shit shows. I'm Andrea and I'm clearly a mess. Uh, so today we are joined by returning guest, friend of the pod, Barb Nangle, Barb is a fellow shit show. She is part of our Patreon community. She is a boundaries coach and she is the host of the wonderful podcast, Fragmented to Whole, Life Lessons from the 12 Steps. We are diving deep into being an adult child at work. So I had a listener reach out a couple weeks ago asking me to do an episode on this topic and said that she had recently lost a job, a job that she liked through due to her self-sabotage or self-sabotaging behaviors. You know what? I I feel like my whole career has been self-sabotaging, but it's actually worked out well for me. Like I genuinely have self-sabotaged myself into this podcast. So I don't think it's necessarily always a bad thing. You know, I think that when we're self-sabotaging, that that is obviously something that we need to to look at and work on. Uh, It was the case for me, unresolved shit. But at the same time, it was also my inner teenager being like, what the hell are you doing? Like, we don't belong here. This is not what you're meant to do. So we're going to like cause some problems So you can stop doing this and do what you're meant to do. But I thought I'd share a few self-sabotage stories that I have from work. So I did an internship in college. Um, I took the semester off from school and was working full-time. So I I think I was a senior. And um, four years sober at this point. And so it was with uh, one of the big four public accounting firms. So it was with the firm that my dad had been a partner with. So at this point in time, he had retired, but um, he helped me get this internship. And so this was when I was dating Mr. Looks Perfect on paper. If you're not familiar with him, go listen to episode five, I believe it is. Um, But so I was a complete hot mess in this relationship. And especially in this relationship, because he did not, it was like essentially long distance. So he lived in New York City, but he had been, he was working down in Florida in Jacksonville. So he lived here like part time, but I would say the vast majority of the time he was up in New York. Anytime he wasn't there, 
And then like 50% of the time that he was in town, I was a complete mess. I was a complete mess. And he was super avoidant as well. And somebody who definitely used work as a way to avoid intimacy in relationships. I didn't know I was an adult child at this point in time. And I didn't know that what I was experiencing was complex trauma. And I, you know, I couldn't figure out what was wrong with me, but I just assumed that it was because I liked him so much, but I could not perform. I was completely incapable of being present, of, of showing up. My mind was literally hijacked. It was just not a possibility for me. And so I sucked. I sucked. I was no, I was no bueno. And um, the relationship ended in the middle of my internship, or I say ended. He said that he would be back in two weeks, and then he just like never came back. <laughs> and then I ran into him. I ran into him a year and a half later on the sidewalk in San Francisco. Um, but so the relationship ended, and then I was able to kind of turn things around at that point. And I thought I did a good job and I got good reviews on kind of my last two projects that I was working on, but it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough um, time for me to turn it around. And so at the end of the internship, they did not extend an offer to me and me not getting this offer was a really big fucking deal because of who my dad was. You know, he was uh, no longer working for this firm, but he had been a very senior partner, highly regarded And so the fact that they didn't give his daughter an offer goes to show you how shitty of a job I did. I felt a lot of shame about that, a lot of shame and a lot of embarrassment. Um, But it all worked out exactly as it was supposed to because, you know, had I got that offer, I would have stayed in Jacksonville. I didn't really want to stay in Jacksonville anyways. But because I didn't get that offer, I decided to move to San Francisco where I would then meet Brian number one and Brian number two and meet my therapist. And then also like self-sabotage at a a few few more jobs so that I would land here as your shit show podcast host. During Brian number one and Brian number two, same deal, horrible employee. I was working in accounting. I went and worked for another big four firm And uh, yes, I was a CPA with a personality. And this is a job that is very intense, a lot of hours, high stakes. And it seemed like I only got in these relationships when it was busy season. (laughs) So like when there was like important shit that needed to be filed with the SEC was when Andrea would have these nervous breakdowns and not be able to show up and do her job. And that impacted a lot of people. And that resulted in in other people having to, to pick up my slack. And I didn't feel so great about that either. But after Brian number two, and when I started working with my therapist, where I had a review from that prior busy season where I had really just sucked ass, you know, I was able to own up to all of it before... They would give you your review. You had to give yourself a review. And I just owned everything. Every single thing that could have been owned. 
So when it was time for my manager to give me a review, there was nothing else for him to say. And I was able to walk into that meeting with him and and hold my head up high and apologize, you know, and own my part. So in the big red book, there is a chapter about this. It's called Taking Our Program to Work. And in that chapter, there is a laundry list for the workplace. Now, the classic, the good old classic laundry list has 14 traits, but this laundry list for the workplace is 24 traits. Uh, I'm not going to read all of them to you, but I sent out a survey to everyone in the Patreon asking them to um, let me know which which traits resonated with them the most. So here were their top four. So number six, we have felt isolated and different from everyone around us, but we don't really know why. Twelve, we do not know how to speak up for ourselves when someone has said or done something inappropriately. We try desperately to avoid face-to-face confrontations. Thirteen, we are sensitive and can get extremely upset with any form of criticism of our work. And then 17, we do not know how to be assertive in getting our needs met or expressing a concern. We may have to repeatedly rehearse our comments before delivering them. I want to talk about the first trait as well. It is, we confuse our boss or supervisor with our alcoholic parent or qualifier and have similar relationship patterns, behaviors, and reactions that are carryovers from childhood. So, A couple weeks ago on the Shit Show Saturday episode with Alice, she talked about how she doesn't have a broken romantic picker, but that she's had a broken boss picker or a broken work picker. And I think many of us can really resonate. And we find ourselves in these toxic workplace situations for all the same reasons that we find ourselves in toxic romantic relationships. We are seeking out what is familiar and predictable, even though it's painful. We are trying to reenact our our childhood and hoping to change the outcome and get it right this time. We stay in toxic jobs or workplaces because we have internalized that that's what we, that we don't deserve any better than that. And we seek jobs or bosses that reaffirm these negative beliefs that we hold about ourselves. So it also talks about how we often reenact our dysfunctional family role that we played as a kid in the workplace as well. And so it says, the hero child usually grows up to be the perfectionistic workaholic who is independent and overly responsible, but who still has feelings of self-worth. The lost child is often a good observer and listener and does not demand much of others. As an employee, the lost child does not want to draw attention and may be depressed and unable to establish close relationships. This is the invisible employee who no one knows much about. The mascot has a good sense of humor and is easily identified at the workplace. Here she is able to entertain and amuse coworkers. The mascot worker seeks attention and makes it friends easily, but underneath has feelings of unworthiness. And then the scapegoat, it says the scapegoat grows up accepting blame where none is due or attracts blame and acts out with negativity. In the workplace, the scapegoat or problem employee may attract blame with negative behavior and then complain about being picked on 
or treated unfairly. Operating from a sense of resentment, the scapegoat easily stirs up trouble at work. So I have definitely played out my scapegoat role in the workplace. And I would say my, I would say my last two jobs before the podcast. So this is how it goes down for me. So once I feel rejected, once I feel unseen, once I feel like I am not receiving the, I don't know, praise or respect or acknowledgement that I deserve, or someone sees my strengths as a liability, my inner teenager will be like, well then fuck you. Uh, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna start acting out now and acting in ways that attracts negative attention and essentially implode. It's exactly like when I was a kid, when I was deemed the identified patient of the family, when I became the school slut in the seventh grade, I handled those scenarios by leaning into that shit. But these implosions were all part of the greater plan. These implosions were important parts of my path to figuring out what the hell I was meant to do because I was imploding because it didn't align with with who I am and what I was meant to do. All right, a few more things before Miss Barb. Make sure you call her Barb, guys. She shared in our Patreon group the other day that she's not a fan of the Barbara, just like I'm not a fan of the Andrea. Um, Okay, let's give a shout out to my newest Patreon members. Patreon is where I host three weekly Zoom support groups. This is where you come to heal, to grow, to meet other shit shows, to feel accepted, to not feel judged, and most importantly, to have some laughs and a little bit of fun. So thank you, thank you, thank you to Chris, Julie, Maya, Mads, D, Alex, Gab, Carissa, Janine, Daisy, Stacy, Jesse, Megan, Caitlin, Sue, Sky, Marbrick, aka Margaret, uh, Josh, and Karen. Thank you, shit shows. You guys are the shit. How about the rest of y'all do what they did and head on over to patreon.com slash adult child. Our groups are on Sundays at 3.30 p.m. Eastern, Tuesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern, and Thursday nights at 8.30 Eastern. Go do it now. Um, And while you're at it, give me a little follow on the old Instagram, on the old TikTok, at adultchildpod. Um, And of course, Give me a damn five-star rating on Apple and Spotify. If you're new here, that's a requirement. Five stars, do it now. And then lastly, just want to give a shout out to this month's sponsors of the pod, Integrative Life Center. These are treatment centers in Tennessee, Mississippi, and Colorado. They focus on addiction, intimacy disorders, and mental health disorders with a real focus on treating the underlying trauma. I had their clinical director, Carmen Dominguez, on the pod about a month ago. That was episode 75. Really good episode. Go check that shit out. And also go check out the show notes for links to their website, um, email, and a phone number. Thanks, guys. All right, y'all. We got a fan fave, returning guest, Barb Nangle, aka Miss Higher Power Coaching. Hi. 
Hey, you're the perfect person to talk about this with. Awesome. So it I was, it. there wasn't a doubt who, who I would be discussing this with, but oh. first let's talk about how today is your four year anniversary with your, your partner four years guys. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, healthy relationship ever. I am 59. So I don't give a fuck how old you are. It is never too late. You're never it too old. I was 55 possible. and he was 60 when we met. And I, he's my person. He is my person. And we are um, actually, he one day was listening to the John Tesh radio show and he goes, Bar, I found out what we are. We're lats. And I'm like, what? He goes, L-A-T, living apart together. So apparently this is really common now with older people where we're life committed life partners. Uh-huh. We are never getting married and uh-huh. we are never living together. Uh-huh. We're living apart together. together. And I was like, oh, <laughs> that's so perfect because we are clear. We're not going anywhere. Like we're in. But we love our lives separately and we love our separate homes. And mm-hmm. it's honestly, it's a, it's a boundary. And there's a part of me that every once in a while doubts about like, how intimate are we? And I'm like, we're pretty fucking intimate. And we've decided we don't want to combine our households. Mm-hmm. We don't want to combine our finances. What did those? Well, first, before I ask these questions. So how long had you been single before you started dating him? Four and a half years. Four and a half years. Okay. Yeah. And, and had my you... last relationship was a five-year super fucking codependent relationship. Okay. So was there any, like, was there any dating? Yes. In that period? Yeah. So six months. I feel like I might've told you this story, but anyway, who cares? Um, I, about six months into my recovery, I started dating a guy and this is hilarious, but I thought I wasn't codependent anymore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So here's evidence that that was so not true. Most homeless guy. (laughs) Most homeless guy, right? So, and that wasn't a dating relationship. I know, I know, but I wish it had been. (laughs) So this was a professional guy. And I remember I met him. um, He walked into the meeting room. And in my my thought was, this is the kind of guy I should always have been dating. Because he looked like he was very professional and he looked very self-assured and all that sort of thing. And I forgot that I thought that for months. Well, he invited me to lunch and the way that he communicated with me about it, it was more than a professional lunch. It was very clear. And what I can realize now was that I did a thing that I've always done, which is if somebody's attracted to me, it must mean that I'm attracted to them. Obviously. And my current sweetheart, Chuck, is the first person I dated where I realized I was interested in him but i didn't know if i was attracted to him and i was like oh those two mm. things are separate like what i didn't know that mm. so anyway back to this guy he wanted to be sexual with me only on the phone if that ain't called emotional unavailability wait I did he tell you that, that? yes really yes yes and here's another thing How did he say that to you? I I think we got started talking um, in like a sexual way on the Uh phone. And I was like, yeah, I'm not really interested in carrying this forward anymore. Like if you want to have a relationship in person and he, I don't remember the words he said, but it was like, that's not happening. 
Yeah, like, so what do you like? He's like, I like it on the phone. You know, right. (laughs) Well, here's the thing. And I don't remember if this was before that or after that, but he sent me a dick pic. Uh And I was like, this was my first reaction. I was like, oh, now I, but I was also aroused by it. Oh, I thought you were going to say like, okay, well now I understand like why he only wants to. No, no. But it took me until I watched the Amazon series Transparent and mm-hmm. there was a, one of the family members in that show went to an SLAA meeting. Mm. And in the meeting, he was told arousal does not equal consent. And I was like, what? And it helped me retroactively <laughs> understand that my first reaction of going <gasps> when he sent me the dick pic was that it was out of bounds. Mm. But I overrode the fact that it was out of bounds because it was physically arousing, sexually arousing to me. And I didn't understand like those things were not fused. So I think a lot of what has happened in my recovery is things that I thought were fused are not. So arousal and consent or, or, or attraction and um, interest, you know, just c- craziness. So anyway, that was I, not his dick. Yeah. It was not his dick. And <laughs> well, anyway, so that guy, that situation only lasted for four or five weeks. That's good. And it was six months into recovery. How many times did you hang out with him in person, though? So I did business things with him in person. But he didn't want to go like on a date date. We went on a date one time. Okay. Yeah. And there was no kissing or anything okay. like that. Interesting. So- after that happened, it showed me like, um, no, no, not over the codependence thing. So that was in September. That would have been September of 2015. My birthday is in March. So I said to myself, you know what? I'm not going to date again until at least my birthday. Mm-hmm. And then when I got to my birthday, I had even more recovery. And I was like, yeah, I think I'm going to wait until I finish the 12 steps. And then when I finished the 12 steps, I was like, you know, it's not that I don't want to date, but I'm not going online setting. Yeah, up- I'm not pursuing it. You're open right. to it. Yeah, because I'm not missing anything and I'm really enjoying living my life, like figuring out like who I am and all that kind of stuff. So, so what did the courting process look like with Chuck? Um, it was it was wonderful. It was really slow. Um, he so the first date, which was four years ago today, we had a coffee date. And I was going to show him, talk to him about my road trip. That was how he reeled me in. He was like, tell me about your road trip. I love a captive audience. And I just got back from a six week fucking awesome road trip. And he was asking me all these questions. And I had wanted to tell the story of my trip in like chronological order. But he was asking me questions that went to this different part of the story and everything. And I remember leaving and going, I don't know what the hell that was, but I want more of that. Mm -hmm. And he had before we had coffee told me about a five dollar yoga class i'm a woman who loves a bargain mm-hmm. and then when we were at meeting he said there's this app called freeprints.com where you can get 85 free prints per month so i love a bargain so i went home and i speaking your love the language app. huh speaking your love language <laughs> yeah. And so I downloaded the app, I screenshotted it, I sent it to him. And I said, you are a wealth of information and resources. Thank you so much. And he wrote back, gave me two compliments and asked me for a date, which was to go to a museum. 
and I do love museums. And he um, was just very, he did all these things to show me that he was interested in me without groping me. He was literally the first man I have ever dated that was not trying to get his hands up my shirt, in my pants, all that kind of stuff. So he did things to make it clear, I'm interested in you without groping. Whereas in the past, to me, the groping was, the inter- I hated yes. it, <laughs> but it was like, oh, it's an indication of interest. So he would do things like he would put his arm around me for mm-hmm. a few moments and then take it down. And it was like, this is really cool. And um, he just was just uh, really a, like an upstanding person. So one time we went to, so there's um, Connecticut Gay Men's Chorus has this monthly thing that everybody around here calls Gay Bingo. Mm-hmm. So they have a, a drag queen that is the MC of the evening and they have a theme every week and all of the guys in the chorus dress up in these mm-hmm. totally like, gay amazing outfits and they ask people to come and it's like super fun and I was already going with friends and so I said hey I'm going to gay bingo do you want to go and he goes so you're saying this is something that you think that I would enjoy and I was like actually no I'm saying I'm going to this I don't know you well enough if you'd like to go I'd love for you to come with me and so it was like kind of cool so we went we had a fun time and during that he made a comment to my friends about how much talking I did. And I went, oh, it's on. And when we were leaving, he did that thing with his arm around me briefly. And he said, I regret that I made a negative comment about your talkativeness because your talkativeness has actually been incredibly wonderful and warming to me. And I appreciate you. And I was like, oh, don't worry about it. Um, I've heard it so many times. And the next morning I woke up and I was like, you know what? It actually did bother me. That's why I went, oh, it's on because that was me being defensive. And was I, he, did he say it in a joking way? He did. Yeah. He did. Yeah. But I still, yeah, yeah, yeah. Was I like, get it. You know, so I texted him and I said, you know, um, I realize now that it actually did bother me. And so I really appreciate you apologizing and he wrote back and promptly admitted when we were wrong and I was like hallelujah he is speaking my language you quote the 12 steps to me man you're fucking in wow yeah and then how long were you guys dating before you became in a relationship so we started dating okay four years ago today and then in December is when we had the conversation about sex and I said to him Um, I want you, let's just be clear about that, but I'm not ready. And I'm like, I don't even know what that means because those words have never left my mouth before. I just know that I'm not ready, but I will tell you a couple of things I do need to be ready. One, we need to be in a committed monogamous relationship. And two, we need to have STI testing. So he was like, absolutely. I'm a hundred percent with all that stuff. So I would say this mid so probably two months before we uh-huh. decided that we were exclusive. I mean, uh-huh. we were exclusive, but yeah, we didn't yeah. have the conversation. And then, um, I mean, I could go on and on and on about this, uh, because there's so much that I learned. I, I actually did, um, a, my podcast episode called boundaries in the bedroom a few weeks ago that tells literally all of this stuff. 
Okay. So maybe I'll I can put it give in the show it to you. Notes. You can link, link yeah. it in the I'll show notes the show because notes. Yeah. it literally go like I didn't know until years later. Oh, these were all boundaries that I was putting in place, or that he was putting in place. Beautiful. So, so let's leave that cliffhanger. Yeah, cliffy, a little cliffy. <laughs> um, okay, workplace. So, yeah, I've just had a bunch of people reach out about specifically one one gal reached out saying that she just got fired from a job that she really liked because of self-sabotage. I know that that's something that Karen's been talking about like in our group. In the big red book, it talks about how the dysfunctional family roles that we played as kids Mm -hmm. shows up in the workplace. And so that's very much true for me. I was very much the scapegoat. Mm -hmm. And then I would say that like, you know, the hero child or the lost child, those are the ones that are more submissive, people pleasing, don't know how to say no, all -hmm. those things, perfectionism. Mm -hmm. Um, So I feel like those, that seems to be kind of like the two ways that I think that this stuff really shows up is in that. When you were talking, I was thinking um, a couple things. One, the way that I think about it is we recreate our families of origin everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Especially a place that we spend a lot of time, like the workplace. So Mm -hmm. I was telling you before, like my 19 year boss, she was my dad. She was a woman, she was black and she was younger than me, but she was my dad, right? And so um, I was basically trying to like fix her, you know, and fix my relationship with her. And the other thing that occurred to me and you're talking is we don't know how to act. I mean, that's Period. exactly what being an adult is. We don't know how to act. And a story. <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, and for me, like I'm definitely like at my core, like people please are codependent. I think of myself as a recovered codependent, mm-hmm. but because what comes along with that is controlling behavior. So not only was I people pleasing and not knowing how to say no, but the people who were like below me on the organizational chart, I was super fucking controlling of, Mm. you know? So I'm like ass kissing people, pleasing my boss, bending over backwards, like going above and beyond the call of duty, thinking for her, doing shit for her. And meanwhile, telling my colleagues, this shit needs to be done this way on my timeline, only trying to be nice about it except for not realizing that I wasn't, you know, like I realized now, like I was a dick a lot. Mm. I did, I just thought I was right. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. how did that relationship end with that boss? I got laid off, but I was two and a half years into recovery. And so I had started extricating myself and I had stopped doing, and I had doing all the things and I was letting her have the repercussions of her shitty ass behavior and her lack of follow through. And I started setting boundaries with my colleagues. And um, so we had like, like a smaller team nested in a larger team. And I kind of like took control or took authority over the smaller group, not took control, because I did it in a healthy way, and established some norms for the smaller group, so that we started communicating much more effectively. And in meetings, we actually had meetings. And then in the hallway, we would run into each other and talk about like just our personal lives. Whereas the other way it was flipped, we would run into each other in the hallway and talk about work shit. And then in a meeting, we would sit around and bitch about our boss. You know, we wouldn't get anything done. And so, but we also started communicating a lot more effectively and found ways to work around her Mm -hmm. that were relatively healthy. It wasn't manipulative. It was like, well, if she doesn't, she doesn't show up at the meeting then it's not happening you know or if she doesn't come to the event then 
or like she's not here instead of making some bullshit excuse for her not being there you know Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I did start um, putting boundaries in place and distancing myself from her. Um, and I remember there was a time. So, so I worked for her for 19 years in total. And there was a time maybe 10 ish years in where she was thinking of leaving. And I remember practically having a panic attack and like, what am I going to do without you? And I also knew, like, she would tell me, like, she basically had friends. And then she just, like, when she moved on in her life, she didn't take her friends with her. And I knew that she meant that about me, too. And I remember being, like, devastated about it. And by the time I left, I was like, holy shit, I couldn't wait to get, like, away from her. You know? Mm -hmm. That, the book, the the chapter on In the Workplace is really solid. Yeah, there's a lot of really good shit in here. I just pulled it out again this morning and I'm like, oh my God, look at how many items I have. Let's see. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten of the 24 items circled. I have question marks next to some of them. One of which is like, why is that a question? That is 100%. <laughs> I also think it's interesting how there's 24 workplace right, but there's only 14 regular ones. I know, I know. What the heck? I know. And then I have I have two that are checked and underlined. And then I have three that have question marks next to them. And then I have one that has a star. So like there's a lot going on here. Which one you know? do you feel you resonate the most with? Um okay. Uh well, I it's hard to say because I just looked at number one and it says we confuse our yeah, boss supervisor yeah. with our alcoholic parent or qualifier. Like I just told you, she was my dad. Um, authority figures scare us, uh, lose our temper when things upset us rather than dealing with problems. Don't know how to ask for what we want and need. I just was incapable about that. Um, one of the ones that you sent me as one of the most popular was we do mm-hmm. not know how to speak up for ourselves when someone has said or does something inappropriate. We tried, mm-hmm. de- we tried desperately to avoid face-to-face confrontation. Like I was like, I'll do fucking anything to avoid a confrontation. Whereas now I nip shit in the bud um sensitive to any and get extremely upset with any form of criticism so that makes me think of the laundry list trait where you know afraid of angrily people and any personal criticism and the way that i understand that one is i take everything personally it's a personal affront to me oh i wanted to be in charge of every project people pleasers didn't know how to be assertive you know, I know you asked for one, but I'm telling you <laughs> for all the ones. Don't know how to set boundaries, which is hilarious that I'm a fucking boundaries coach now. Um, high tolerance for workplace dysfunction. I mean, I have a high tolerance for dysfunction everywhere. In general. Right. I just now realize, oh, I don't have to live up to that high tolerance for dysfunction. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. The most so I sent out a survey and I asked people what they related to the most and the most common one was number six which is we have felt isolated and different from everyone around us but we don't really know why Uh so you and i both spoke beforehand that we don't necessarily personally resonate with right that doesn't sorry guys right and i think you know that's something that i've heard from so many people in recovery that they almost feel like an alien that they're not part of and i just have never that's just never resonated with me i guess you could think about it from the standpoint of the first characteristic in janet wotitza's book adult children of alcoholics is 
guessing at what normal is, Mm. you know? And so I think that that there's kind of that aspect of it as well. Yeah. Yeah. What I will say for me, I can relate to feeling isolated and it is because, um, I will open up too soon at work. So I will disclose too much personally Mm -hmm. too soon. Mm -hmm. Um, and then that will ultimately backfire on me. Right. Yeah. It will alert people like, uh, she's, um, She's fucking nuts. A little, little loose with the boundaries there. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so, um, cause, but it's interesting. Cause it's like, I feel like that's one of my greatest qualities, but at, then at the same time, it can be like my biggest liability. Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, I was just gonna say, I think your greatest quality is, I don't know, but what I see your greatest quality is your ability to from other people their vulnerability and one of the ways that you do that is by, by being, being vulnerable, vulnerable with them exactly. but there's a difference like what i've learned is there's a difference between tmi and being vulnerable with people mm. like i did the tmi thing my whole fucking life it's just inappropriate information and it could be inappropriate because of the situation it could be inappropriate because of the context it could be inappropriate because of the relationship you know, it's just like, what's appropriate when you just met somebody it's, you know, unless you're in a meeting, like an ACA meeting, you know, it's inappropriate to tell them, you know, all the drama of your life or whatever, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's like, it's hard though. Like I'm thinking about, you know, now I have the luxury of just kind of working for myself, but like, I don't like a lot of people or there's, a lot, you know what I mean? Like there's a lot of people that I wouldn't really want to spend a lot of time with. And like, that's really difficult if you're going to work every day and it's like with a group of people whose company you don't particularly enjoy. Mm-hmm. Like that's rough. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but like for me, I didn't know this sounds dumb, but I didn't know that I could get another fucking job. I know. Well, that's what it talks about. Well, in here. Wow. well, actually, so I had a series of jobs until I started my career. You know, and like every job I had, I was there for two years. I got, I learned everything I needed and moved on. So it was when I got in my career, I felt like I was locked in. Like I couldn't, I couldn't leave because my whole life it was like, I need to have like the benefits package, mm. you know? And I realized like after that was gone, it was like, no, what I wanted was security. And I have it now, which comes from me showing up for myself and my higher power. It's not financial security that I wanted. It was like self security. I don't know how else to describe it. You know, just being secure in my actual being. What were the messages that were ingrained to you regarding career or work during your childhood? Go to college, go to college, go to college, go to college. That was it. Go to college. No, no talk about like, what the fuck does that mean? What do you do when you get out of college? How do you make it through college? None of that. Just go to college. And did both of your parents work? Oh yeah. Oh, my mom actually put my dad through college because he went into the air force after two years in college. That's when they met. And then he decided he wanted to become a pharmacist. So my mom put him through college. And did both of them have careers that they enjoyed? Um, my, I, I don't know. You know, um, my dad was a pharmacist and he opened up a pharmacy. So he was an entrepreneur. 
Um, did he enjoy it? I, I know he and he liked not working for other people. I know that. Um, he liked complaining about working all the fucking time. My mom was a secretary. Um, I think to a certain extent she enjoyed it. Um, but she was very clear, you're not becoming a secretary, Barb. That's not happening. Mm-hmm. You know? Um, but but she I was like even when she retired, she didn't like do much. And I'm like, like my dad is like, my parents got divorced when I was like 18. And I was like, he's traveling around the world. Like, don't you like resent him? She was like, no, I don't. I really am very content with my life. She was an artist. So she painted and she drew and she loved to read and she loved to watch murder. She wrote and do crossword puzzles. (laughs) So I think she was the kind of person whose contentment didn't necessarily come from her job. She wanted to do things that mattered Mm -hmm. to people. So like for the longest, the longest part of her career was as a secretary in the music department at UConn at the university of Connecticut. And she had a lot of students that really looked up to her. She was very, she was a rescuer, fixer, enabler, you know? So um, she was constantly like helping young people. I remember I met one student who he was graduating and he said, I, I chose this school because of your mom. Wow. Because I came here to visit this campus. And she was like, you need to go to this office. You need to talk to this person. And she told me what to do, you know? And so she, she liked being able to do that. Yeah. So the, the other traits that people said they most resonated with. So um 17 and 12, I think, have to do with speaking up for ourselves. So we do not know how to get to be assertive in getting our needs met or expressing a concern. We may have to repeatedly rehearse our comments before delivering them. Nothing wrong with that. And then um, 12 is we do not know how to speak up for ourselves when someone has said or done something inappropriate. We try desperately to avoid face-to-face confrontation. So I feel like you're... You're the boundaries queen mm-hmm. and the, um, you know, the queen of how to get our needs met. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so what are your thoughts on, you know, how to be assertive um, or expressing concern as it relates in the workplace? Yeah. So just briefly, I will say like both of those are on my list. You know, those were things that I used to have a problem with. And I think the way that I handled um, when someone did something inappropriate was I talked about them behind their back. That's how I handled mm-hmm. them. So I didn't mm-hmm. talk to the person. I talked to everybody else and not about what they, well, I mean, of course I said what they did, but I mainly just disparaged their character. Mm-hmm. So um, I think like we, we were talking about this before we went on the air about like this feeling of wholeness mm-hmm. um, that shit happens to me, but it doesn't take away from my wholeness. And because I feel whole now, which I partially got to that by learning how to set boundaries, it's a lot easier for me to have a conversation with someone that in the past would have been difficult. Mm -hmm. So I know who I am. I know what's important to me. And I know my worth. Um, so I think this would be a good time to tell you, I told you I had a story for you from mm-hmm. yesterday. So I work in a co-working place and technically I am a contractor who works there 10 hours a week, but they basically treat me like an employee. And that was part of the conversation I had with the owner yesterday that, you know, every time I do my taxes, my, my accountant is like, you're an employee, you're not a contractor. But in any case, um, 
one of the, this is the second part of a conversation. We just couldn't finish the conversation last week. And one of the things I was saying to him is I'm really um, distressed by the lack of communication in this organization. And he tries, he did this the first conversation and he did this yesterday. He tried to say to me that the main problem with the lack of communication is that I am not there at the same time as the operations manager. And then I don't answer my email or my Slack messages unless I'm on the clock for that agency, which is a boundary that I have. Mm -hmm. And I said, all those things are true. However, you cannot blame the lack of communication on this entire agency on me and Lee not being here at the same time, because this is an overall agency problem and communication can happen via Slack and via email. It doesn't have to have to happen in person. And secondly, if, if my only answering email and Slack messages while I'm on the clock for your agency is a deal breaker, which I hope it's not, I completely understand, but it's not going to change because if I'm working for you, do you want me checking my business email? Do you want me checking my Yale email? Do you want me checking my recovery email? No, you don't. And so I, in the past, there's no fucking way I could have had that conversation with him in the past. I, I just, ju I would have, I just wouldn't have addressed any of it. I wouldn't have told him that I was not pleased with the lack of communication. And then when he tried to push it on me, like I, that wouldn't have happened because I wouldn't have had the conversation. But if somebody tried to push something on me, I don't, I can't even imagine how I would have handled it. But it was like, it's not like anything he said was untrue, but the fact that he was trying to take, give me responsibility for the organization having lack of communication and saying, and he called it my firewall, which I loved because that's my firewall. That's like a really fucking hard ass boundary is what that is. And, and I said, and I told him the last time we talked, I said, the reason that I don't check my emails and my Slack messages for your agency when I'm not working for you is because I'm going to want to act on them. And the next thing I know, I'm going to be down a rabbit hole and I'm supposed to be doing something else. And it doesn't work for me. The reason I'm able to get so much shit done for so many different organizations and for my business is because I have boundaries around my time. Mm -hmm. And I get that that doesn't work for some people. And that's fine. But those people don't need to work with me. So um, where we landed was that if he wants to pay me more per hour, I can give him more hours. But at this rate, he's not getting any more hours from me because mm -hmm. it's not worth my time. Mm -hmm. You know, I am losing opportunities to work on my business when I work for you. And the only reason, like, I love what I do there. I love the organization and all that sort of thing. But I stay because it is a consistent paycheck that I can rely on every month, whereas my business has up and down. Right. And so um, I felt like such a grown up. It was incredible. It was just and this is a man, too. So it's like, you know, you got the whole gender thing, you got he's the boss thing, you know, he's technically an authority figure for me, but I don't approach him as an authority figure anymore. And it has everything to do with all the boundaries. I started with little teeny tiny boundaries with myself first, showing up for myself, 
And, you know, I love this, that one of my friends in recovery said to me early on, when you, you don't put a fence around something you don't give a shit about. So you don't put boundaries around yourself if you don't give a shit about yourself. Well, what I realized is I actually started giving a shit about myself by setting boundaries. So I set the first boundary and I'm like, oh my God, that feels really good. So I feel good. So it's easier to set the next boundary. And then because I set that one, I feel even better. So it's like this, this iterative process. And it's also the process by whereby you get to know yourself and decide what's okay with me and what's not okay with me. And so for me, I've learned to figure out where my boundaries go based on what I value. And you know what I value now? Me and my time. And I want to continue working there. But if he wants me to be at his beck and call, no, Mm -hmm. it's not happening. So, um, so in the past, how, how would you maybe have responded to that? Cause I'm just like thinking, you know, some people, if they haven't done the work, you know, they would take it on and believe that Either yeah, I would have. I would have shit my pants probably on and believe that it's your fault. Yeah, yeah. I would have. Well, I would have not believed that it was my fault, but But I would have just. I would have accepted the blame. Yeah, yeah. And then I would have bitched about him behind his back, and I would have made the situation more toxic. I would have done all kinds of sabotaging. Like I can see this now, that I did all these like like throwing arrows and stuff like that in the past. Mm -hmm. And then I would have resented the shit out of him and demonized him and made myself feel like, you know, I was this victim of the situation and, um, yeah, nothing good would have, I would have just felt like shit in the situation. It just would have been all, all bad. And now I'm like, I felt like totally even killed the whole conversation. So like, and I'm, you know, maybe I'm not answering your question about like, what's the boundary to set? What I hope I'm doing is telling people that regardless of how shitty things are right now, they can change because I didn't used to be like this. Yeah, exactly. Right? Um, and there's a lot that goes into becoming like this, but this is one reason why my podcast is called Fragmented to whole because my experience is before I had recovery, before I had healthy boundaries, I was a bunch of fragmented pieces sort of floating around and recovery. And, and a lot of the recovery that helped with this part of integrating those fragments into one coherent whole was the setting of boundaries because whole things have boundaries around them. So when I integrated my fragments, not only did I integrate them into one coherent whole, I got rid of the pieces that weren't actually me. So now I can be rocked by things that are triggering, but I can't be shattered by them the way mm-hmm. that I used to because I'm not a bunch of fragments. I'm whole. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So he doesn't get to decide who I am. I do. I know who I am. And I am not, I am actually a communicator. I'm a relationship builder. That's my job there. My job is community engagement. I build relationships there. And the way you build relationships with people is communication. So he's trying to tell me you're the problem. And I'm like, (laughs) you know, no, I'm not. And, and what's interesting is 
the thing that I gave him as the example last week when we talked, I said, here's a, here's a specific example. We're saying, you know, this is the, this situation here. And so I said, I, I don't want to go into the details about it, but I said, you know, here's a perfect example of why I'm, what I'm saying is it a problem of communication in this organization. And he was like, okay, I see what you're talking about. Well, then yesterday when we were talking, he tried to bring up that same exact situation and give it as evidence of me mm -hmm. being the problem. And I'm like, we talked about this last week and I shared this whole thing with you. Like what's changed? Like in the past, I wouldn't have, I would have been so scattered and shattered that I wouldn't have been able to access my brain and be able to pull up. We already discussed this. And in fact, I use that as an example for you to show oh, yeah. lack of communication. <laughs> so I think, you know, if I were to say strategies for if you're going to have a situation like this, the thing that occurs to me the most is to get grounded. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if any pause, of you have pause, 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 pause for sure, but also literally in your feet. So if any of you have ever, there's a woman named Amy Cuddy who has like a 15 minute TED talk. It's fucking phenomenal. And she talks about social psychology and confidence and how the Superman pose or the superwoman po superhero pose where you stand with your feet. I think they call it a Kimbo and your hands on your hips. Mm-hmm. There is something that happens physiologically to you when you stand in that pose that does something to your brain. So if you're going to have an important conversation, you go in the bathroom at work. You stand like that for 15 minutes? In 15 minutes. It's <laughs> two, two minutes. Two minutes. Um, if you want, I can send you the link to the Amy Cuddy talk and Please. you can put it in it because I've done this. It When I was starting to learn to be more assertive, I literally, I was like, this is so ridiculous, but I'm like, I'm fucking doing it. And it matters. It does something physiologically to you. That's why it's the superhero pose mm -hmm. because it exudes confidence and it does something physiologically to you that you are able to carry with you into the conversation that you're going to have after that. So I think part of what that does when you stand in that stance is you're literally very clear. Your feet are on the ground. You're paying attention to where your feet are. You're grounded. And so it's a lot easier to be in your body and catching your breath is a really important part of that too. And the way I think of it is when I'm able to catch my breath, I come out of fight or flight mode and I'm, cause I'm basically telling my body I am safe, which means mm -hmm. I can then access my frontal lobe. I'm out of my lizard brain and I can get into my frontal lobe, which is where we want to be in these conversations. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I love that. Yeah, I was just thinking about learning how to be assertive, doing all these things. It's the same, it's the exact same way as like with family, right? Mm -hmm. When you have all these patterns and these dynamics that are established, you have all these like covert agreements. Uh, you've been playing a particular role and how fucking scary it is mm -hmm. and challenging to shift that especially when it comes to work when that is your livelihood, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, like that's scary yeah. and that's yeah. really hard. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. I get it because, you know, when, when you do the, if you do the fourth step inventory, you know, the way the AA big book says is like one of the instincts is security. Mm -hmm. When shit threatens security. your security, yep. that's when we go off the rails. 
you know, and that's, so, so I think, um, you know, one of the techniques that I learned in recovery that I've applied to boundaries is bookending. And this can be super fucking helpful. So um, I want to talk about that because this, mm-hmm. this is really, really powerful. So for those of you who don't know what bookending is, it's when you connect with somebody before and after you do something difficult. Mm-hmm. And it can be super basic. Like you text somebody and say like, hey, I'm going to the gym today. And then you text them when you get home. But it can also be really involved. So if you're going to set a boundary with your boss, right, then you pick what I'll call them your boundary partner. This is a, a, a healthy, supportive person. You call them on the phone. You're like, listen, I really need help. I need to set a boundary with my boss. You have them talk through with you and think through things like, what are the words I want to say? What's the setting I want to do it in? Do I want to do it in person, on the phone, over email? Mm-hmm. You know, how do I resume? You know, how do I want to do it? And you also have them reassure you and affirm you to you. Like, this is the right thing to do. You are not a bad person for doing this. I'm going to be here to support you. And then the day of that you're going to do set the boundary, you contact that safe boundary partner again. They reaffirm you and you process your difficult emotions with them. You get off the phone with them. You go and you set your boundary and then you come back to your safe boundary partner and you process your emotions with them again. Mm-hmm. Now, here's why this is super helpful, because most of us with shitty boundaries were either enmeshed or abandoned or both in our families. So we have no models of healthy separation. So for us, setting a boundary feels like abandonment, even if it's with a toxic motherfucker. Right. But when we have this safe boundary partner, we know somebody knows who I am, what I'm doing, what I'm going through. and I'm connected to that person. And maybe we don't remember it in our frontal lobe at the beginning, at, you know, mm-hmm, and consciously, mm-hmm. but subconsciously, we know we're not alone. And when we process those difficult emotions before and after the boundary setting with this safe, healthy person, we don't launch them at the other person. Mm-hmm. We are not responsible for holding on to those, all those emotions in ourselves, the way we always have been, the way we were as children. We have this safe other person. And it's astonishing. And I learned this because of something that happened with me. And I like on reflection realized, holy shit, that was super helpful in setting a boundary. And the person that did it with me, not only did they offered to talk to me before the phone call. And then on the call, not only did they process, they said to me, let me pray for you. And I was like, Mm. holy shit. So I felt loved through that whole process and I didn't feel alone through that whole process. Whereas my whole life, everything difficult I had to do, I had to do it alone. So I would say if you have a sponsor, if you have a therapist, a fellow traveler, that would be the good, safe, healthy boundary partner person to use. Well, that's just absolutely it. Yeah. Yeah, It's like, do not try to figure this shit out on your own. You need help in getting clear on things like before being assertive, before you set a boundary, before you bring something up, someone's crossed the line, like get really clear on it, get that perspective from somebody else Mm -hmm. and less is more, Mm -hmm. right? Like, I feel like that is like one gift that I've got through my therapist that I feel like I'm pretty good at is like helping people really, I mean, I I remember I used to have like emails that I was going to send my parents, you know, and it would be like paragraphs. 
and we would whittle it down to like two fucking sentences. Right, right. Agreed. Yes, yes. Succinctly conveying. Like, that was me. Too much information. That's another way of too much information. Like they don't want to wade through 15 paragraphs. What are you trying to say? Mm-hmm. You know, but like the way I think of it is I was trying to convince myself. That's mm-hmm. why I had to write 15 paragraphs, mm-hmm. you know, because I didn't feel justified in, in getting my way. You know, and I feel the need, this just popped in my head. So I, I want to share this. When I was in my late twenties, I worked in a restaurant. I was a waitress and it was a super busy weekend. One of those like holiday weekends or something. And the owner, I just happened to be the waitress in front of him when like the straw that broke the camel's back, like somebody took someone else's food and somebody's food got burned and shit. And I was like, how about some vegetables? And he took the bowl and he slammed it on a thing. And he goes really loud in the kitchen. How about sucking my dick? You cunt. And I was like, holy fucking shit. Right. It was completely unwarranted. Right. <laughs> Clearly. And I don't know. It sounds rational to me. There, I just kept <laughs> working. And I, and everybody that worked there was like, why the fuck didn't you leave? I'm like, I had the hundreds of dollars in tips on the tables right then. There was no way that I was leaving. But I knew I had to say something to him. So I went the next day. This is back when I drank really heavily. And I had a drink in the bar before I went and talked. That's to him. what your version of standing in the Superman pose was. Yeah, yeah. So this is this is like 30 years ago, right? So I went to him. And what I wanted was an apology. And I didn't get it. What he said to me was he felt like what he said was warranted. <laughs> because I talk a lot in the kitchen. That was his thing. So I wanted an apology. I didn't get it, but I'll tell you something. He fucking never crossed me again, Andrea. He was super respectful of me from then on. And I was like, what the fuck is this? So I went to him. I said something to him. I didn't get what I wanted in the moment, but what I really wanted was respect from him is what Mm. I got. Bam. Yeah. And that was, I had to have a drink and he, I was literally, he shook my hand and it was shaking. He goes, you need to have a drink. I'm like, yeah, I already had one. And then of course I went and had another one, mm-hmm. you know, but I, I just, so I'm telling that story to say, like, even if you don't get what you want in the moment, it doesn't mean you're not going to get respect from the person for standing up for yourself. You know, actually, Mr. Fix Your Picker today had a reel that says self-respect is like pepper spray to assholes. It's the truth. I mean, I was like, this is beautiful. You know, like when you respect yourself, people who are assholes are repelled by that. True. He always has such good metaphors. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. The the only like kind of final thing I wanted to talk about are the paragraph where it discusses we, when we stop mentally putting a family member's face on our coworkers, what they say or do will affect us less. Yeah. It is. It's like in all of these situations, it's like when it's hysterical, it's historical, or when we're having an overreaction, Mm -hmm. we're not reacting to something that is in the present or reacting to something in the past. So I think it's like giving ourselves some grace there. And as we heal our shit, our reactions are going to be right a lot less so what you just said is making me think about i when i looked at my computer i don't know where i got this from but i have a worksheet 
for the workplace laundry list. And what, what you're basically saying is we kind of want to do the same thing with the workplace laundry list that we did with the laundry list in the yellow 12 step workbook, which mm -hmm. is connect what, like what happened in my childhood. Exactly. Like, let's think back to like the grand epiphany of your life was Brian number two and realizing, Oh, this isn't about him. Mm -hmm. This is about my childhood. Mm -hmm. So that is the thing like that understanding for you is what changed everything for you. Right. So what we're saying to the people who are listening is when you start to realize you're having the same responses at work that you had growing up, or you're acting like knowing that is really important. Then the trick is how did I get there? So this worksheet that I'll share with you should do it. Even if you don't have this worksheet, look at the laundry list worksheet in step four from the yellow workbook and do the same kind of thing with the laundry list traits, the workplace laundry list traits to help understand where this shit came from. Because when you can see where it came from, it's easier to unhook from it. Absolutely. It says in the, in the workplace chapter, it says that aha moment when we recognize that our past is affecting us in the present is the first big step toward a new way of thinking and behaving yes. at work. Yes. Yes. And so what just clicked to me when you said that was stop thinking other people are the problem. That That's like the key to my fucking recovery was mm -hmm. understanding my part in things. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't mean nobody did anything. Mm -hmm. It means you're probably doing shit to make it worse. Maybe somebody did do something, but maybe somebody didn't. And I realized, you know, I, I call them boundaries of self-containment. When I stopped doing shit, like 85% of the drama in my life went away when I changed. Some of that drama did have to do with other people. And it was that I don't fucking hang around them anymore. <laughs> you know, like Dan, my homeless friend. Dan, the man. <laughs> in this chapter is when they use like the ACA uh, version of the serenity prayer. The um, Good God point. Yeah, it says... I thought this paragraph is good. It says the wisdom to know the difference is sometimes a gut feeling, sometimes a hunch, and sometimes the result of focused soul searching. Sometimes it is just a leap of faith, trusting in our higher power to take care of us in the current situation. Some of us use an adaptation of the serenity prayer that can be helpful in dealing with workplace challenges. God grant me the serenity to accept the people I cannot change, the courage to change the ones I can, and the wisdom to know that one is me. Yeah. Any closing comments? I feel like that was a really good note to end on. <laughs> understanding like you cannot fucking change other people. You know, and if if you're if it truly is other people, get the fuck out of there. Mm, I know. Get a different mm. job. I know. Yeah, we you have that uh you have that right. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I just, there's so much of my life. I didn't understand. I had choices. I didn't understand. I wasn't making choices. When, when you say the words, I didn't have a choice. It's not true. Maybe your choices are shitty, but you always have choices. Yeah. I think it's hard to see that until we get recovery. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. Until we start seeing our part in things. You know, I, I have a relatively new client. She texted me this week and she was like, um, actually, I feel like I want to read it to you. Um, if I could find it pretty quickly, it was something like, um, crap. Oh, it's really good. She said something like, oh, 98% of the work I'm doing here is, um, I'm realizing that 98% of these boundaries, I can't find it are me are with me. 
And I'm like, yes, that's, that's the epiphany that all my clients have is like, I'm the problem, but I'm never going to say you're the problem to mm-hmm. them. Because- you just, yeah. You just let you leave a breadcrumb trail. Right. Exactly. Conclusion. Because when people have victim mentality and you tell them that they're the problem, they feel victimized further by that. Mm-hmm. So it's like this whole, like learning how to set boundaries, coming out of victim mentality, learning your part in things. It's all connected. Well, this has been lovely. Where can yeah. you be found Barb? I can be found. My favorite place to hang out on, on social media is Instagram and higher power coaching. My podcast is fragments to whole.com. Um, hit me up, send me a DM. Get a girl up. Yeah, absolutely. Listen to my podcast. It's fucking awesome. It's not as good as this one. I will say no, that. It's, but it's, it's damn close. It's different. It's, re- it's very different. It's 10 to 20 minute episodes. It's me. I only have a guest every 10th episode. It's a little um, hit. But it's, it's a hit. hit. Yeah. Yeah. 180 yeah. episodes this past week. Congratulations. Yeah. Yeah. I'm excited. Yeah. This, this last week was a really good one too. I've gotten a lot of comments. This guy, Craig, I met like four and a half years ago. He's from the Bronx and tells his, his story. story. And he has a really it. wonderful way of talking about, it's called the survival traits and addiction. It's a really good one. Okay. Yeah. Putting it on my list. Alrighty. Well, that wraps up today's episode. As always, you're welcome. I know you heard something that can help you on your own journey. Thanks again to Miss Barb. Love talking to her. So go check out the show notes. I'm going to include some links to her pod. Um, I'm going to include a link to the workplace laundry list. So next week, I have a really good interview for you. It is with Her name is um, Janine Shahidi, and she wrote a book called, I want to see off the top of my head, it's called Abundance Over Trauma. Let me look it up, actually. It is called Abundance Beyond Trauma. I really liked this book a lot, and I really, really, really loved my conversation with her. So really looking forward for y'all to hear that episode. Um, And that's it. Join the damn Patreon. Our groups are so good, y'all. You will feel right at home. It is like a warm embrace from your first meeting. Um, Go give me a damn five-star rating and I will see you shit shows for another fucking amazing episode of Adult Child. It's going to be super raw, super real, super vulnerable. Like I added one in there. Super raw, super vulnerable. I'm super excited for y'all to hear it. It's going to be a good night. I promise. Let it all go